This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. Sunday is one of the most fun Sundays in the church. I don't know about you, but uh, as a girl, I just loved being able to have a palm in my hand and wave it around. And You even had permission to jump up and down a little and be a little more wiggly than usual in church. And that was a blessing indeed. So uh, churches can celebrate Palm Sunday according to the calendar a couple of different ways. The whole Sunday can be palms, or you can talk a little bit about what we call the passion So Palm Sunday is the beginning of Holy Week. And Holy Week is uh, each day we're mindful of Jesus' journey that leads to the cross. And that is called the Passion, right? So today we will touch a little on the Passion, but uh, celebration will also be on uh, Good Friday, the 19th, at 7 o'clock, just a prayer service. Uh, So come if you would like to really lean into this story and see what God is doing in your life through Holy Week. But we're going to start with Palm Sunday, and these, these stories of what happened in the very beginning of Holy Week that we get from Mark really tell us what this Hosanna, this cry to save us, is all about and how it matters to God and why Jesus is responding to that cry for salvation. So the story begins, and this is charming, right? The charming beginning of this story is always the donkeys, right? Such a playful part. Then the the depictions of the donkeys in the book illustrations that I see for Palm Sunday or the old illustrations are always with the donkey looking very serious. Um, But donkeys are in real life kind of full of personality, right? And a little bit on the goofy side. And so uh, there's no reason to to think that Jesus' donkey was any less goofy than any other donkey. It's kind of the beauty of it, right? Jesus interacts with us in real life, in real terms. So when I was looking for donkey pictures, interestingly, I was also offered zebra pictures. I guess they're the donkeys of Africa. But even more surprising to that was that apparently when you Google for donkeys, you also get kangaroos. (laughs) So who knew that the kangaroo was the donkey of the outback? But clearly it is. So we'll go back to actual donkeys. So we transport ourselves back to today, 2,000 years ago, to the great city of Jerusalem in the Roman province of Judea. The whole city is preparing for the religious holy days of Passover. Remember, Jesus is a Judean. He's an Israelite. There is no Christianity yet. Jesus celebrates Passover. Passover is a commemoration of when the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. The Egyptian rulers and the Egyptian state had become very cruel. And God heard the enslaved people cry out, save us. 
And God acted to free them from slavery, sending Moses and Miriam and Aaron to organize the Hebrew people and negotiate with the ruling Egyptian family. The Hebrew people fled Egypt under God's protection, fleeing across the Reed Sea and into the wilderness. More than a thousand years after Moses, afterwards Moses leads the Hebrews out of Egypt, Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Judea. He's about 30, 35 years old on the day of the Palms. It is a time when people in Judea were themselves crying out for God to intervene. They wanted a land of peace and prosperity where no one was enslaved by war or politics or debt and where everybody eats. And we read that story from Mark's gospel. So the story begins with Jesus and his followers in the town of Bethany, which is just over a mile east of the great city of Jerusalem. Jesus travels towards the city over the Mount of Olives and calls for his two disciples to run ahead of him and untie the donkey. They will find that donkey ready and waiting for them. And he says, untie the donkey and bring it to me. He meets up with them again just outside the eastern city gate and they throw robes and cloth over the donkey and Jesus rides on top. Hosanna, the procession begins. The shout goes up, Hosanna, save us, son of David. The people gather, some no doubt just to laugh, but many because they have heard of Jesus the Nazarene, this holy man, the miracle worker, the rabbi. They gather as a throng calling to him. They heard he might be the Messiah. They heard he might be the son of David. They heard he was the son of God. They hoped and prayed for a kingdom of God to come at last and usher in a time of peace. They raised palm branches shouting, save us, save us. Jesus' procession into Jerusalem was about true rulership and true salvation. The donkey symbolized a king who understood that the earth was precious and created by God, that the fruitfulness of the earth fed the people, that God was the one who brought the rain and created the soil and nurtured the seed to grow. No false king, no grand empire had the right to take for themselves what God provided for the well-being of all. On the same day as Jesus comes in through the eastern gate on the other side of the city, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, and his army come in through the western gate. Judea was a difficult place to rule, and Rome kept its military thumb on the city of Jerusalem, especially during Passover. Pilate would have ridden a war horse in full regalia, and the message of Pilate's show of force was that no one better get any ideas. No uprisings, no disrespect. Caesar is Lord. The two processions couldn't have been more different. There is no indication that the two met. Pilate goes to the imperial residence, a place of merchants and capital, and Jesus goes straight towards the temple, the house of God. 
Mark tells us Jesus arrived at the temple and took a good look around at what was going on there and turned around and headed back to Bethany for the night. The next morning, Jesus and his followers rise and begin the trip back to Jerusalem. There are fig trees planted and growing along the path. At least one tree is in full leaf. Jesus is hungry. All those leaves indicate that there will be fruit on that tree, not the later fig crop to come. That main crop of figs will grow later, and it isn't the season for those. But the first crop, called the breba, those were the early figs growing from last year's fruit. They were not quite as good as the main crop to come, but they were good all the same. Jesus gets to the tree, his stomach growling. Anticipation, perhaps. For sure, there will be ripe figs for breakfast. Figs have to ripen on the tree. They cannot be picked to ripen later, so a farmer would not have already picked them. Figs also ripen quickly, and we're talking about the fig that he would have encountered in Judea, the caprica, not modern fig varieties here. Figs also ripen quickly, so in the middle of the season, farmers would check twice a day and harvest the ripe ones. So there would always be rotating ripeness of figs on the tree, which means there would always be figs for those who were hungry. But the, when Jesus gets to the tree, there is no fruit at all on the tree. No first figs, nothing. Now the first hearers of this story understood farming and they knew about figs. They knew the trees east of Jerusalem would leaf as early as Passover. They also knew that if a tree produced a showy canopy of leaves but no fruit, as this one did, that the fault was that it had gotten too much water and too much fertilizer. This tree was over-fertilized. The greedy root system had expanded to take too much. It drew the water and soil and nutrients into itself, and instead of giving back the first fruits which belonged to God, it had used what it had taken to wrap itself in glory rather than giving the glory to God. Jesus curses that fig tree to the root. No one, he says, will ever eat your fruit. And he heads into Jerusalem. Such a tree could absolutely have been real and present that day. And the metaphor for Jesus is right on the nose. Israel's rulers like this tree had overextended their root system. They had taken up the necessary nutrients for the Garden of Eden itself, and they had used God's bounty to enrich themselves. Jerusalem's high priests and priestly families paraded around in such high finery, taking what did not belong to them and giving nothing back. Jesus is not amused. I mean, look at this picture of a fig tree. They get absolutely huge. What a footprint it covers. How splendid a place for hospitality and prayer that a healthy fig tree provided to the village. It did need fertilizer and water and soil. And in exchange, imagine the bounty of the healthy fruit this was as it should be. 
Compare this to a picture of the temple in Jerusalem. How impossibly splendid also. What a footprint here in the city for hospitality, for shelter, open to those in need, for those in prayer. Imagine the bounty of a healthy temple system. It could provide the very source of life and spiritual well-being. But it was not healthy. The temple was as barren as the fig tree. The only fruit this temple had to offer was the showy cloak that glorified itself. Jesus heads to this very temple in Jerusalem. During the preparations from Passover, all the faithful in Israel would come to the temple to wash and be made clean and to offer a sacrifice for their sins and to be reconciled to God. The pilgrim arrives ready to remember that he is a Hebrew freed by Moses from slavery in Egypt. He expects to find a state of holiness and is instead confronted by merchandising. Behold the money changers. If it was, a two nine, if it was 2019, there would be an array of T-shirts, lunch boxes, and beach towels for sale, all emblazoned with a logo for Passover 2019, or in this case, Passover 1834, or 34, depending on how you're counting. Passover with Pontius. Better not step out of line. To purchase an animal for sacrifice, Pilgrims had to exchange their Roman coins for shekels, everything at triple markup. And Jesus cannot abide it. He takes action. He grabs the nearest table strewn with money boxes and whatever else and throws it over. The Gospel of John tells us Jesus grabs a whip. These bankers and merchants have insulted God with their greed, their graft, their dishonor. They have profited off the hardships of the poor. Jesus raises that whip and his followers unlock the cages, release the animals, turn over the tables and drive the money changers out. Hasn't it been written, he says, that my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? you have turned it into a hideout for crooks. Whew, right? There must have been something to see. The crowd that gathered was enthralled. Wow. Somebody is actually doing something. But, of course, I bet there were also complaints. Someone always has to make a comment or complain after all, Jesus is stirring up trouble. Thanks a lot, Jesus, for being so inconveniently interested in serving God. And because Easter is so close, I can't resist sharing this stock photo of a very grumpy bunny that turned up while I was looking for images of complainers. <laughs> this bunny is not having any of it. Why don't you just hop yourselves back to Nazareth, he grumps out. The chief priests and their middle managers are also not happy. This direct action by Jesus makes him dangerous. His demand for a system that is a system of change strikes at the very roots of the corrupted Judeo-Roman state. Jesus 
and his followers do. Overturn everything and then hop along. They exit the temple and head back to Bethany. In the evening light, as they walk back out the east gate of Jerusalem, the tree that Jesus cursed is withered and dead. The truth is revealed. The mockery of God will not stand. The temple state will be destroyed down to the root. It will not be allowed to send up shoots. It must be completely reformed. God loves the people of Israel. God jealously protects the people of Abraham. And God will not allow the corruption of the holy temple to remain unchallenged, unanswered, and invisible. Mark's story for that day of palms sets the stage for Jesus' final work as he prepares to pick up that cross. Hosanna! Hosanna, save us, the people cry, and God answers them. God is sending salvation. God sent Moses into Egypt. God is sending Jesus into Jerusalem. And so the events of Holy Week are put in motion. Jesus will be arrested, tried, convicted of blasphemy. Jesus will walk the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering and be crucified. John Wesley, together with his mother Susanna and brother Charles, was a founder of Methodism. It was his actions of ordination, of laying on hands or palms, as Dorita and Sherman so wonderfully mentioned, that the American Methodist Church is born. John Wesley tells us that salvation comes from faith. Salvation, the word means to save, not simply our souls for some future final heaven, but our bodies, our lives, our hopes in the here and now. Salvation is about well-being. It's about God's will for us that everybody eats, that no one is without clothing, warmth, hospitality, and medical care, and anointing when they die. We can have a just society. We can demand a leader who rides a donkey. Jesus challenged the showy leaves that were the fruit of empire. Jesus said, we are to expect real fruitfulness, the real nourishing foods of God's garden earth that are born from seed and sun and water and soil that are cultivated by the farmer and her family and that are given for the feeding of God's people. Can we believe? Can we believe that this salvation is well and truly possible when John Wesley preaches salvation by faith, he says that faith is not speculative or a rational thing. It is not cold or lifeless. It is not a train of ideas in the head. It is a disposition of the heart. Salvation does not come from greed, but from kindness. Salvation does not come from injustice, but from heartfulness. Salvation does not come from complaints and grudges, but from generousness. Let's turn this thing around. 
Salvation is the promise if we will only follow God. This week is Holy Week. We remember this week how God in Jesus reaches for us. Jesus walks the Via Della Rosa to the cross, enduring arrest, entering even into death. And in so doing, Jesus teaches us that there is nowhere that God cannot go. There is no despair, no hopelessness, no greed that Jesus cannot reach through and turn around. And he does it riding on a donkey. <laughs> he does it by declaring to the world that salvation is possible right exactly now, right now, right now. What are we waiting for? Will you just believe? Will you? Will you believe? God reaches for you this week. What will your response be? Amen.